This is Leaving Laodicea with Steve McCraney, and this is a podcast for those who realize that apathetic, lukewarm, flannel graph faith just isn't going to cut it in the chaos that surrounds us today. We need something more, something different. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that Jesus chastised the religious elite in his time for being able to be wise about everything, the stock market, who's going to win the Super Bowl, about the weather, but not about the signs of the times. It seems like the religious establishment at that time, and even his followers, were very keen on those areas that addressed themselves. You know, they look at the sky, and they would see whether or not it's going to rain, whether the the waves are going to be rough, and, and they would plan their day accordingly, but he called them hypocrites because they were unable to determine the signs and the times that we live. The same thing applies to the church today. And so as I was going through and preparing this message, I thought I would lay out for you the basic five signs of the end times to show you where we are in redemptive history. The first one, of course, is the regathering of Israel back into their own land. When we think of signs of the times, we have a tendency of going to Matthew 24 and thinking of wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and all that kind of stuff. But the signs of the times kind of take an extended period of time to grow. And then pretty soon, like the birth pains of a mother about to give birth, they just compound each other right towards the end. This was an event that took place May 14th, 1948, which shocked the world. It shocked theologians. It it was an amazing event that's never happened to any people or any nation ever, when for 2,000 years they were dispersed in the second great dysphoria over the entire earth, no longer had a homeland, no longer had a temple, no longer had a government, but they still maintained their common language. And God miraculously brought them back into their own land. And as you know, since that time, it has been the centerpiece of world conflict ever since. I wonder why. Number two is this great surging apostasy. Uh, I'm going to share a couple of verses in a few minutes about that. But before the Lord comes, there will be a great defection from the faith. Now, these are not the elect. These are not people that are truly saved. These are people that are the hanger-ons. This is the groupies. These are those people that come to church and have some sort of um, arm-length distance uh, relationship with the Lord, but salvation has truly never taken place. They're the kind of people that you ask, and are you going to go to heaven when you die? Well, absolutely. Why? Because, you know, I... I asked Jesus into my heart when I was nine at Vacation Bible School and haven't thought about him since. And there'll be a great defection that will take place because the Lord will be purging his church and those that will stand and those that will persevere will be those that truly belong to him. We're in the midst of this right now and it's growing with ever intensity. Then, of course, one of the signs of the times will be this Mideast peace plan. Because the Antichrist has to guarantee a seven-year peace plan with uh, Israel and their neighbors and the Islamic nations and uh, the revived Roman Empire and all of that, and, and which, as we know, is the tribulation period. But there's also these rumblings of that preparing the people for that peace that start even now. I mean, Trump has come out with his peace plan, and everybody, every president since I don't know, Nixon seems like they've come out with some sort of peace plan. 
we have this reuniting of the Roman Empire. And then the question, of course, is that the Eastern Roman Empire that we know about, is that the Western Roman, or the Western Roman Empire that we know about, or the Eastern Roman Empire that we don't talk about much in our history books? The Western Roman Empire is the Gentile nations, um, Spain and France and Germany and England and, and stuff of that nature. The Eastern Roman Empire is almost made up entirely of Muslim nations. The reality is there has to be a reunification of that, and we've seen the uh, European common market. We've seen the stuff that's going on now. At some point in time, there will be some sort of confederation, I believe more on the eastern part of the Roman Empire, Turkey and, and many of the uh, Muslim nations, to guarantee this peace treaty with Israel. And, of course, the final sign is globalism. It seems like every president we've had since Reagan has pushed globalism. One of the reasons why we have factions in our own government and people in our media who want to downplay, make America great again, is because a country like America, thinking for itself and acting on the behalf of its own citizens, is an enemy to globalism. Globalism is just worldwide socialism. And we're seeing this poured out now. As a matter of fact, we have an election coming up this November, and it appears that one, the Democratic primary candidate, or the candidates they have, push for globalism, a push for socialism at the demise of our own nation. Not to talk about politics, but you see these signs beginning to compound one on top of another. We've talked about the first sign, and so what I want to do is talk one more Sunday about this great apostasy and answer the question, how can you make sure that you're not part of it? How can you make sure that your children aren't swept up in this great apostasy? The passage comes, it's, the word uh, is only mentioned twice in the New Testament. The passage comes from Second Thessalonians chapter 2. I shared this with you last week, and pretty much Paul is writing to them because they're confused. They've received some sort of letter or prophetic utterance in their church or some traveling evangelist came in and convinced them erroneously that the day of the Lord had already taken place. If the day of the Lord has taken place, they've missed the rapture and they're troubled. What happens to our lost loved ones? What happens to uh, those that have died in Christ? I mean, did we miss the coming of Christ? Are we truly lost? What's going on here? And so Paul begins laying out for them some of the signs that have to take place before the coming of the day of the Lord. And here's what he says. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by a spirit or by a word or by a letter, as if from us. It wasn't from us. And the letter said, or the spirit proclaimed, or the word was given, that the day of the Christ had already come. So Paul is trying to relax them to let them know that there are some signs that have to precede the coming of the Lord. One of them is the, the emergence of the Antichrist, and there's another sign that is of primary importance. And here's what he says. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless, number one sign, the falling away comes first. There's this apostasy that takes place. There's a rejection of Christ. Now listen, just so that you'll understand, 
the apostasy doesn't have to be in total. In other words, you don't have to take a pastor who turns around and says, I'm no longer a Christian. An apostasy can take place when you or I, who used to hold biblical values and follow biblical commands in certain areas of our life, reject that and go our own way. That's what's happening in the church today. The scripture has clear teaching on sexual immorality. It has clear teaching on um, the role of women, clear teaching on homosexuality, clear teaching on abortion, clear teaching on every controversial issue that we face today. And what happens is day by day, another church, another denomination, another pastor, another group of Christians defect to the dark side. They apostatize in those areas. Yes, I believe Jesus is Lord, and yes, I see he's commanded these things in his word, but I'm going to rebel against them and reject them. And a and a an apostatizing believer who rejects on smaller issues because they're following their own conscience, their own heart, whatever they believe, will eventually apostatize in totality. We see this happening everywhere today. The falling away must come first. And then he talks about after that, we have this Antichrist, a man of perdition, and then that's that's a whole other story. To apostatize, to fall away, means to depart or to forsake, or literally our English word means apostasy. It means a rebellion. I'm rebelling against an authoritative word of God. It's a deliberate defection from a formerly held religious position. A lost person who has always been lost and never claimed an allegiance to Christ cannot fall away from something they never professed. So when the apostasy takes place, it's from our neighbors and our friends and our fellow believers in Christ and our family members who have said, you know, I believe in Jesus, but I just don't believe in this part of the Bible anymore. Or I believe in Jesus, but I believe that, and there's a contradiction that takes place there, and it will eventually lead towards a rejection of everything about Christ. There have always been a degree of apostasy in his church, but one of the signs of the end times is that will reach its peak or its zenith. I shared a couple noteworthy examples of this last week and the week before. The apostates we find now are proud of it. Yes. I mean, if you'll, if you'll notice what they write, I used to be a Christian. I used to pastor a mega church, but now that I've rejected that because I'm embracing in some situations, homosexuality. Now I wake up in the morning and I'm free and I can experience God like I never have before. And they begin promoting the sin rather than being ashamed of the sin. Now, here's what's going to happen in the end times. Let me just share a couple words with you here. Second Timothy chapter 3 says, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. And then it goes on to describe those perilous times. They'll be unloving, slanderous, people will hate each other, they'll divorce at the, at the drop of a hat, narcissism will, will run rampant, people will be brutal, they'll be slanderers. You go on Facebook and you say something how you believe and everybody jumps on you. And, I mean, it gets, it gets horrific. But there's a reason for that. And at the very end is this passage, it says they have a form of godliness. In other words, they claim an allegiance to God. They want to somehow act like God, like I'm a Christian, I'm like you, but they deny that that God has any power in their life. 
has no power to rule over me, no power to change anything. I believe in Jesus, will give me many gifts, but I don't believe in the resurrection. I don't believe in sinless atonement for sins. I don't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the scripture says to true believers in a time like this to run away. Run away. I know, but it's my, it's my extended family. Run away. Why? Because God is concerned about your doctrinal and your moral and your spiritual purity. And the scripture clearly says, do not be deceived. Bad company, these people will corrupt good character. It never says it works the other way around. Well, I know this guy. He, he's, you know, I'm a really strong Christian and he's not a Christian at all, but I really like him. And so I'm going to date him and marry him because somehow by marrying him, I'm going to lead him to Christ. You're being deceived. It never works that way. It only works the opposite of that. Bad company corrupts good character. It doesn't say good, good character by osmosis leads someone to fervency with Christ. Second Peter chapter three, verse three and four. Know this first, scoffers will come. When? In the last days. So we have apostates and we have people scoffing and making fun of your faith. Jude 17 through 19 says this, But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you there would be mockers scoffers, apostate, and now mockers win in the last time. We see this in the media. We see this. I mean, just think how Christians are portrayed on television and in the movies. You're dumb. Just think how men are portrayed. But even especially Christian men, leaders of their families, you're dumb, you're boneheaded, you're just stupid because you can't think with this enlightened mind and be the God of your own universe. There's mockers, there's scoffing, and it's beginning to increase. It used to be, it used to be that there was some sort of respectability that, you know, you didn't talk about Jesus in a terrible way. You didn't make movies up showing that he's a homosexual or drunkard or, or stuff of that nature. You didn't, you know, Hollywood didn't produce movies showing that he had a sexual affair with Mary Magdalene and all that kind of stuff because there was this, this respect, just this morality. It's gone now. It's gone. A lot of it is, fun, is fed by social media, which allows anybody to say anything to anybody and about anything in the safety of their own home as some sort of keyboard warrior. These are the things that are going to be happening. This is the sign that we're seeing happen right now. This great apostasy. So what's to keep you from falling? Oh, I would never fall. My faith is profound. Really? Really? If we sat down and looked at some of your sincerely held convictions, and we looked at the scripture, and we saw what the scripture says, and you found out that the scripture says that what you're doing is wrong, how many of you would change? Well, you know, I, the Bible may say that, but the Bible's just outdated. Uh, that's, just a, that's just a book. That, that, that's how it was back then. It doesn't mean the same thing today. Oh, okay. So the Bible was true 2,000 years ago, but this part of the Bible's not true because it flies in the face of what we believe. That's apostasy. That's moving, that's, that's on that slippery slope. What prevents us 
from denying the power of Christ? What prevents us from believing that there's many ways to God rather than just one? What prevents us from being deceived? Is the deception going to be really that bad? Yes, it is. Unbelievably so. And the idea is the fact that one of the the reasons, one of the things that you must be sure of is what you believe. You know, I'm firmly convinced this happened. Why? I mean, what what evidence do you have? What are you basing that on? Is is it your faith or is it the faith of, of somebody else? Have you personally experienced God for who he is? I mean, it doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what other people say. You know for a fact by your personal experience who God is. It's, it's, it's just in you and no one can snatch it out. Or is your faith your father's faith or your mother's faith or some pastor's faith or somebody you respect's faith? Are you, if they believe and you trust them and they tell you it's true, is that all the faith that you have? Because that's not enough. It's not if you can't ride the coattails of somebody else's faith. Your faith must be your own. And you must understand how powerful and overwhelming and devastating this deception and apostasy will be. You know, before we get to... 1 Corinthians, just turn to Matthew 24. Let me, let me show you this. Jesus teaching on the end times. Jesus in Matthew 24, he sees the temple. He talk, the disciples say, look how beautiful the temple is. And Jesus said, I'm telling you that in time to come, not one stone will be led, led upon another. And the disciples were so troubled, they talked to him privately in verse number 3. We sat down on the Mount of Olives and his disciples, Mark tells us it was really Peter, James, John, and Andrew of the disciples, came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the sign of the end of the age? And then Jesus goes on to lay out for us his prediction of what's going to happen at the end times. Take heed, he says, that no one deceives you. First one, deception. Take heed that no one deceives you. Why? For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And then he goes on to talk about wars and rumors of wars and famines and nations will rise against nation and all these are the beginning of sorrow. And and then he says in verse number 10, he says, and then many will be offended and betray one another, and will hate one another. And many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. So much so, and we talked about this, and we talked about this two weeks ago, this perfect end-time mental disorder of narcissism. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. He only talks about wars and rumors of wars one time. He only talks about earthquakes and famines and pestilence one time. He talks about signs in the skies one time. But he talks about deception over and over and over again. Many will, no one deceives you. Many will come and deceive many. They will rise up and deceive many. And then he talks about how intense that deception will be. And this is one of the scariest verses in this whole chapter. Verse 24 and 25 says that false Christ and false prophets will arrive and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. 
If it was possible, and it's not because God is holding us and our salvation is secure in him, that if it was possible, the deception would be so bad that Billy Graham and the Apostle Paul and John and James and Peter and Andrew, if they were alive, would be deceived. You and I would be deceived. And what's keeping us from not being deceived is the power of Christ holding us to him. If it was possible, it would be so great and so intense that even the elect would be deceived. And then it's like he steps back and says, I've already told you in advance. So be on guard and watch for this deception. Is it really going to be this bad? Absolutely. And so the question is, are you prepared to face this kind of deception? Or literally, how strong is your faith? Is your faith strong enough to love your wife as Christ loved the church? Is your faith strong enough to diminish your own needs for the sake of someone else? Is your faith strong enough to raise your kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Or just where we just stick them in front of television because we're too tired? Is your faith strong enough to wait until he opens the door for you? Or do we just go our own way? Is your faith strong enough to follow his word explicitly even when it costs you something? How prepared are we for this great apostasy? And it all boils down to, what do you believe? I mean, what do you believe? Do you know cognitive facts about Christ, like Justice was talking about, that George Washington was the first president of the United States? It has no impact on my life. It really doesn't matter. It's something that I was taught uh, from authoritative sources. At least I had faith that they were. And so, therefore, I've embraced that and I believe that, but I don't really care. I mean, who cares? Is G, do you have faith in Jesus the same way? Yeah, he's the son of God, and he was born of a virgin, and he lived for three and a half years, uh, a minister for three and a half years, and, and he was crucified and buried and raised on the third day, and he ascended up into heaven 40 days later, and he's coming again. And sure, I believe all of that, but not enough to change my life. I'm not willing to die for that. I'm not willing to suffer for that. And I'm definitely not willing to inconvenience myself for that. How strong is our faith? Is based on how much we believe in the object of our faith. I have learned this in my own life, that when truth becomes real to someone, it stands forever. Forever. And we're not going to be able to survive the great apostasy on someone else's faith it has to be our own. It has to be. I was going to put the heading on the slide, what do you believe? But belief is so fickle. Is what do you know to be true? What do you absolutely know to be true? And not 1492 and the Strong's know. What do you gnosko to be true? What do you embrace as truth? What, what do you know by experience to be true that nothing can shake that? from you. So the question is, has God ever revealed himself to you? I don't know what you mean. Well, sure you do. You've heard stories about God revealing himself to people, and you heard one last week when Roberta came up and shared about this incredible miracle that God just gave for her. Other people were benefited by it. Most of the people didn't even know it was taking place. True? But it was it was for her. And it's one of those high points. I have those high points in my own life where God 
gives me peace or God shows me something or God works a miracle out or God speaks to me in, in, in such a way that I know it's him and, and it radically changes me. It may not change my circumstances, but it changes me. Well, how does he speak to you? Well, do you hear this voice in your head? Well, some people do. Do you have an apparition that shows up in your room? Uh, some people claim to do that. Primarily, when God speaks to us, he speaks to us through this authoritative source that we bring, which is our Bible. This God-breathed word that speaks only about him. So has God ever spoken to you through his word? Well, yeah, I remember... I was really struggling with something. I, I read a passage, and, and God gave me a rhema, and that passage was just meant for me, and all of a sudden it changed me, and, and I just felt so so great and wonderful. And okay, I mean, that's, that's really cool. But has it changed your view of Scripture? Has it changed your hunger for more of his word? I mean, if God spoke to us through his word, why would we do anything else but look and try to learn more about God through his word. What usually happens is he speaks to us. We have this mountaintop experience. Thank you, God. I'll never doubt you again, God. And then life rolls on and we go back to the same humdrum lives that we have. And we watch the football games and we watch the television shows and we do all the stuff we want to do and push him on the back burner. And it's almost like he has this, this book that's open to us to reveal himself to us in a profound way. Now, I want to I wanna try to communicate this to you the best I can. You and I have absolutely no idea power that is in this book. I mean, this is God's word. This is, this, is, this is what he has laid out for us. He has supernaturally put it together, and he guided over 40 people in three or four different languages over thousands of years to write down exactly what he wanted written down. Flawless. And without error. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. It tells about people who follow God and fall away. It talks about people who God redeems with grace. It talks about people who are known as those who have a heart of God and yet still sin. It talks, it, it, it tells the good things and the bad things. And the Old Testament talks about the birth of a nation, God's nation, the birth of a people, and the coming of a Messiah. And the New Testament reveals that Messiah to you, gives us his words. The the words of Jesus in these four chapters and our four books and then smattered throughout some of the epistles. And then, of course, we have this account of, of what the early church was like, how they lived with the same spirit that lives in you. And we compare our lives to their lives, and it seems like they had something maybe we don't. And then, of course, there's these doctrinal books like Romans and First and Second Corinthians and Galatians that, that talk about these issues to help us grow in our faith. And we've, got, um, we've got some letters that are written to individuals. Paul writes letters to Timothy, a pastor, how to love people and, and how to stay strong in the faith. And we have this prophetic book of Jude, and we have the Revelation, which God says, I will bless you if you read it. It's all there. Many Christians have never even read the whole Bible through one time. One time. It was too hard. I mean, it's amazing. You, 
If you, if you make notes in your Bible, you go to the New Testament, it's all written up, and you just kind of flip back here, and there's page after page after page, and chapter after chapter after chapter, with nothing underlined and no notes. And Why is that? Well, that's not really important to me. But Jesus said in John 5 that all Scripture speaks of him. And when he said that, he was talking about the Scripture that existed at that time, which is Obadiah and Amos. Do you know what this book is? Have you ever just embraced it for what it is? Sometimes when I get ready to look at his word, um, I open it up and I lay it down in front of me, my desk, and I'm, I'm just overwhelmed about what's about to take place. Now, granted, it is print on paper, and it is words and punctuations and numbers. There's letters, and, and I can read these, and they have no effect on me, or I can read these, and they literally, I can hear Christ speaking to me. And they can absolutely change my life. That, that I, it's how I embrace the book and how I approach the book. Am I expecting God to speak to me, or am I going through some sort of schedule, and I'm two days behind, so I've got to read like four chapters today, so let me get through it just as fast as I can, because I want to get on with my life and the things that I want to do, and then we wonder why so many believers are going to be swept away by these by this apostasy, when the dark side comes and shows signs and wonders, and all we have is a stale faith. We have multiple scriptures and multiple translations. We have apps on our phones. I hate Bible apps, but that's just me. You know, I, I like to I like the smell of the pages. I like to, to take a pentel and write notes and to myself and how God has spoken to me. It is. It's amazing. It's, it's the greatest gift other than salvation we've ever received. That God did not leave us without his voice. He placed in front of us this book with almost a, over a thousand chapters to, to lay out in front of us. This is my son. This is my, the prophets. This is how I dealt with my people in the past. And I'm dealing with them in the, in the, well, I'll deal with them in the future. And I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is who you are in Christ. This is what I expect of you. This is everything you ever need in life. And there's hidden knowledge here. There's things that the world can't even understand, yet you do. When you embrace God's word, you have a wisdom and knowledge that is greater than any Harvard professor, any politician that spouts their views on CNN all the time, any movie star that wants to accept the Academy Award and tell you how to live, anybody ever, any great philosopher you have more wisdom than they have, and it's all laid out in front of you. It's like, it's like going to this massive, incredible buffet and being told to eat as long as you want and anything that you want. And for you and I to say, no, I think I'd rather go down to QT and get a hot dog. And then I'm going to go on and do what I need to do. And nobody loves QT hot dogs more than I do. But it's nothing compared to some of the spreads I've seen and been part of on these marvelous buffets. God's laid it out for us, and all he expects us to do is to eat. I mean, have you ever experienced him through his word? 
Has it ever become so alive to you that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is true and God is speaking to you and your faith now is not built on what some preacher says or what some your mom said or some Sunday school teacher said, but your faith is built on God revealing himself to you. Until that happens, we have much growth to do in our spiritual life. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let me just go through this briefly. The fact that you have the Holy Spirit is revealed to you by his word. The mind of Christ is revealed to you, is, is revealed to you through the Spirit, through his word. Everything you know about Jesus is found in his word. Every answer to every question that you could possibly have about anything is found in his word. And he's given us the Holy Spirit to be able to illuminate that for us and give us a wisdom and an understanding that the world can't even embrace. Wisdom of God, or the foolishness of God we talked about last week, if you can even conceive of that, is greater than the wisdom of God. I mean, greater than the wisdom of man. How is that possible? And you have it. Right here. Right here. Chapter 2, verse 1. Paul, probably one of the most brilliant men who ever lived, trained under Gamaliel, learned in Tarsus, was a Pharisee among Pharisee. He was the perfect choice to be able to write the epistles in which he did. He says, And I, brethren, this is Paul speaking, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. I didn't rest on my own strength. I, I didn't practice it in front of a mirror. I didn't use great words and perfect diction so that you would think I was something special. When I came to you to proclaim to you the testimonies of God, I determined, verse 2, not to know anything, anything, among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, whom the chapter before says is moronic, is foolishness, is just stupid in the eyes of those who are perishing. I came to you with a message that would make you view me as a fool. But I don't care. What do I care what a lost person thinks about me? Because in me, And through his word engrafted in me, I have something the smartest lost person doesn't. I have this wisdom of God, this understanding of God, this power of God. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with human persuasive words of human wisdom. Not at all. But what I did is I demonstrated the spirit and of Dudamas, or the miracle-working power of God. Paul, when he presented the gospel to them, he didn't try to butter them up. He didn't try to say all the things that would make them like him. He didn't try to mix a little truth with a little narcissism. He didn't do any of that kind of stuff. He didn't self-promote. He didn't post all his videos on YouTube and begin them by saying, hey, be sure to like me down at the bottom and follow me down at the bottom because it's important for me that you like who I am. Like, we didn't do any of that. I didn't come to you in my own strength. 
I came to you in fear and trembling because of the message that I'm proclaiming. And my speech and my preaching were not in persuasive human wisdom that would make you go, you know what, I, I'm a thinking man, and you've given me something to think about, so I will ponder your thoughts and get back with you later, like skeptics do today. I didn't come with any of that. I didn't try to convince you intellectually of who Christ is. Instead, I came to you with a demonstration, a proof of the Holy Spirit and of his power. Why? So that your faith, like Justice's video, everybody, everything you believe is based on faith, that your faith should not rest in the wisdom that I presented to you by persuasive words of our current culture. But your faith should be in the power of God. So what did he do? He positioned himself spiritually so that his life was so lined up that when he presented the gospel to them, the Holy Spirit was freely flowing through him. Well, how did that happen? We confessed his sins. He spent time in God's word. He was engulfed and, and overwhelmed by the power of the Spirit. So when he came and presented them, he stepped aside and the Spirit moved forward. And it was a demonstration of the Spirit and the miracle working power of the Spirit that you possess that they don't changed everything. Everything. So what is this wisdom that he's talking about? What is this wisdom that we have that the world doesn't? Verse number six. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, who are have a purpose and a goal, and not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age, which are coming to nothing. And there's a world's wisdom. The world's wisdom says, you strike me, I strike you back harder. The world's wisdom says that, you know, that you, you don't give to those who squander what you give to them, that you give to those and make sure they spend it properly the way you want it. The, the wisdom says that when you're compelled by your government or by your boss to do something you don't want to do, that you do just the absolute minimum and then you say, I've satisfied my obligation, you and I are done. But there's a wisdom of God that says when someone maligns you and strikes you on the one one cheek that you don't retaliate to defend yourself. You rest in a God who owns you as, as a doulos and a slave and you turn to him the other cheek. Really? That when they compel you to go one mile, you go two. That's the wisdom that the world can't even understand. That you love those who persecute you, and you do good to people who are evil against you. But but that's insane, absolutely, in the flesh and in this world. But we live by different rules because we are bold in the Spirit, because we've engrafted God's Word in us, and we're preparing our faith not to apostatize. However, we speak wisdom, verse 6, among those who are mature and not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. So I'm going to follow somebody who's coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for not their, but our glory, us, to manifest Christ. 
which none, note that, that's a definitive word, which none of the rulers of this age knew. The word knew here is gnosko. They knew experience by experience. None of this fallen world leaders, none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But they did. But as it is written from Isaiah, I has not seen, I'm sorry, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared, pre-prepared for those who love him. Who love him. On February 14th, 2010, I made a note in my Bible as I was studying this. And the note says this, Lord, so how can I live like this? How can I know what God has prepared for me and freely given me? Wrote it almost 10 years ago. Lord, this is my prayer as I'm reading this passage. How can I do that? How can I have that kind of relationship with you? How can I understand your goodness? There's the world out there that keeps screaming at us. There's the church that kind of just limps along. There's you and I that have a choice of living as ambassadors of Christ, as joint heirs with Christ, or just living like, oh, a believer in a dark world, just holding on by my fingerprints or my fingertips until the rapture. Really? Verse 10. There's this mystery that God has prepared for us that none of the world knows. Verse 10, but God has revealed them to us. Past tense, revealed. How did he do that? Through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, just the deep things of God. And by the way, the spirit lives in you right now. For what, for what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of a man, which is in him? Now, if you notice, that spirit is small s. In other words, nothing really knows me better than the spirit that's in me. You know what I want you to know, or you know what you have, things that I wish you didn't know. You know what only I have chosen to reveal myself. You don't know my innermost thoughts. You don't know what I struggle with. You don't know my lust, and I don't know yours. But who does know that? The spirit that lives within me. It's a spirit that, my spirit that lives within me knows everything about me, is what Paul is saying. And then he says, even so, verse 11, no one knows the things of God except capital S, the spirit of God. That spirit of God that knows the things of God that the world rejects and the world doesn't know and the world which is coming to nothing lives in you. Verse 12, now we have, past tense, received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Why? That we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. You are possessor of incredible truth. And the way that that truth is revealed to you is through his word, quickened by his spirit, turned into a a conviction and a faith and a belief in the truth that you've experienced yourself so that nothing can shake you from that. Nothing. Verse 13, these things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. 
or confirming spiritual things with spiritual. But the world out there, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Did you get that? We do, but they don't. Reason why is their foolishness to them. They're moronic to them. When you walk out of here and you go to your friends who are much smarter than you, much more highly educated than you, can debate things in a way that makes you feel like a third grader, or you turn on television and there's all these intelligent talking heads with all these letters and degrees after their name, and none of them have the Spirit of God, you have a wisdom they can't even dream of. They can't even conceive of. Because the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit. And the Spirit earlier, the Spirit is the one that confirms to us the things of God. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. They are blind but you see clearly with 2020 vision. So where's the fear? Where's the where's the lack of faith? Where's the where does the timidity come from when we are divinely empowered by the spirit of God? Verse 15, let me finish this. But he who is spiritual judges all things, and he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Answer, no one except us. Because the world cannot know the mind of the Lord, but we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Now listen very carefully. The day will come when you will be belittled, if not already, because of your faith. The day will come when you will be mocked, and scoffers will come and make fun of you, like Justice's video, prove to me God exists. Well, what does that mean? Well, have you appear in front of me, and, you know, if you show me something right in front of me, not based on faith, give me a sign, I'll believe. Jesus says that you wouldn't even believe a sign if someone was brought back from the dead. And he brought back the widow of Nain's daughter. He brought back the, the, the young girl. He brought back Lazarus. He rose himself, and people still don't believe. I mean, you cannot convince people with a sign. That's why when Jesus was hanging on the cross and the authorities were there, and says, if you are truly the Christ, come down from the cross and we would believe. What an opportunity, Lord. Come down from the cross. Doesn't matter. They're still not going to believe. They're still not going to have faith. But you do. I mean, we should shine the brightest. We should be the loudest. We should be the most confident in every situation because we have the mind of Christ. The problem is our faith is weak. Our faith, we don't know how to, how to live by that. And when all of a sudden a situation faces us where we have doubts and fears or we can trust in faith, we have a tendency of, of not trusting in faith and having doubts and fears because we haven't exercised that faith because faith comes by hearing. And what's the rest of that verse? And hearing by this word of God. Your faith grows by reading it and digesting it and absorbing it and ruminating on it and hiding it in your heart so you won't sin against him. It's here. It's for us. And it gives us this. It gives us something that no money can buy and that no one else has 
except your brothers and sisters. No one. And it's like we're divinely powerful in him, and yet we still limp around like paupers because we want to be just like the world and not spend the time necessary to embrace this for what it is. Let me tell you how you experience God in his word, and I'll quit with this. As you begin reading, and you just read until it becomes real to you. You know, it's good, don't get me wrong, it's good to have charts. I passed these out to you a month or so ago to be able to read the Bible through in a year. Do you remember that one? And that's nice, but that's that's one goal. That's not everything you should be doing. That's If there's parts of the Bible that you haven't read, it'd be really good this year to read all of that. They'll be able to sit back and say, you know, in 2020, I read the entire scripture. That's not Bible study. That's not a devotional study of his word. That's something on top of that. That's to be able to read and, and make it personal and, and realize he's speaking to you and this is who you are. It's, it's what it says about you. And, and if you do have this Holy Spirit living within you, then you're divinely powerful for the tearing down of strongholds and these, these faulty arguments of this dark world that it talks about. This is who you are. So when you study God's word, what I do, you know, again, I don't know about you, when Lifeway was still around, I would go to Lifeway and I would look at some of the commentaries they had, some of the books they had, but I would love to go over to the Bible section. And I'd pull out the same Bible that I have. I use the Thompson Change Reference Bible, New King James. I'd pull it out and I would open it up and I just love the smell of it, don't you? Just the pages, how they all stick together, make that little sound and all that kind of stuff. And I see all these blank pages and I'm thinking, I could put so many notes on this and so much what God is showing me. And, and then I go back to my own Bible, which has history of my relationship with him written in the margins, like the one I read to you from November 14th, 2010. And the, in my entire Christian life, I have like three Bibles and I've got those and I can open them up and they're all written over and, and I'm, I'm reading it and I'm reading it as God speaking to me, to me. I will open it up randomly in a New Testament. I'm in Galatians chapter 5. Verse number, or chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse number 7. It's right here on top of my Bible. So I'm just going to read it. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him, Christ, who calls you. A little lump leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. Know what he's talking about here? He's talking about an apostate who is preaching the law instead of grace to the church in Galatia so that their faith would be eroded on the grace of Christ and they would go back to following the Jewish law. And so I'm stopping and I'm just, I just opened up at random. You ran well. Did I? Am I? What are areas of my life that I'm not running so well? This is like, this is like something that happens at a judgment seat where I'm standing before the Lord and I'm revealing to him how I've used his spirit or how I've allowed the spirit to use me and what I've done for him. And, and the Lord looks at me and goes, you know what? You, you ran well. It's okay. Um, you know, it's an eight or a seven on a scale of ten. But who hindered you from obeying the truth? What other voice did you listen to, Steve? 
What are the voice of you compromised? Is it the voice of the world or is it your voice? Is it your wants? Is it your desires? Is it this narcissistic thing that's just bred in each of us pride? And you can stop right at verse number seven. I just opened the book up at verse number seven and you could spend who knows how much time and self-examination and reading and turning these into prayers that by the time you finished, you'd be closer to the Lord, you would understand who he is more, you'd be relying on the Spirit more, and your devotion time with him would be greater than just, well, I need to read a chapter today. Hopefully God will speak to me because I'm only giving him 15 minutes. See what I'm saying? It's just, you stop, you take the clock and the agenda off, and you allow him to speak to you, and he will. One of the one of the things I've always tried to do when it comes to preaching is I never want to pre- preach a message to you that God hasn't changed me first. And that's why sometimes I'm we're going through a path, going through a chapter, and it stops right there. It kind of dries up. God's not speaking to me anymore. There, but He's speaking to me over here. So you know what we're going to talk about on Sunday? We're going to talk about this. I'm not. You don't need to be logged down to an agenda. This is not a It's not a bucket list. It's being changed by his word. Amen? Give you one more. Pick a book in the New Testament. Do what? Great. Uh, 1 through 13, pick chapter. What? Uh, Alex, pick a verse. Hebrews 3, 7. Good choice, guys. The heading of this section in my Bible is be faithful. And what we're quoting here is an Old Testament passage uh, from the Psalms. But Hebrews 3, 7 says this. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, And then it goes on to say, do not harden your heart as in a rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness, on and on and on. But it's almost like an admonition. Just picked it at random. Lord, I will hear your voice today. I will do whatever is necessary to hear your voice today. I will turn off my television. I will take the buds out of my ears. I will quit looking at Facebook or anything else that just eats my time away, my finite number of hours that you've allowed me to live. And I will sit before you and pray before you. And as this word says, I will hear your voice. And you could turn just that one verse into a time that when you left his presence, it would be profound. Does that make sense? The apostasy is coming. The apostasy will appeal to your flesh. The apostasy will say, you know, it doesn't really matter what the Bible says because you know better. You, you're smarter. You fall into the, the, the logic of the world here that, that God just loves everybody, that there's no judgment, that God isn't angry with sinners every day, even though that's what his word says, that God is just big gummy bear up in the sky that just wants to bless you and give you your best life now, that there's no benefit for obedience. And that feels good in the flesh, but it's not what the word says. Or you can embrace him for who he is and what his word says and realize that you are divinely powerful by the spirit that lives within you and be able to truly be light in darkness as we see these days approaching. Amen? Let me pray.